Good morning, folks. I'm going to um, have the chance and opportunity to open us in prayer this morning. Um, thank you, Dave. And also, I'm going to play about a two or three minute little tune that I made up to praise the Lord for all of us this morning. Um, and so, God, right now, we come before you, and I'm just really happy to um, be in this position right now. And I just want to praise you for everyone in this room and for Dave and his leadership in this Sunday school class. I pray that everything that happens today, especially this morning, will be done to edify us and to further us in our faith and our knowledge and love of you, Lord. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So, my name is Daniel, if you guys didn't know that, so I want to I want to try to um, uh, improv on the Daniel song in, uh, in Daniel chapter 2 a little bit.
It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what it was in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So that was, that was Daniel's song, and that was wonderful, Daniel. Where you go hide to? I'll see you hiding out now. Um, so that, that, that was awesome. I thought we'd start this morning, um, in addition to that wonderful introduction, reading Isaiah chapter 46. Somebody want to find Isaiah chapter 46? Anybody know what Isaiah 46, what the what the backdrop to that is? It is talking about the gods of Babylon. And um, how foolish uh, people's gods are uh, compared to the true God. And that, you know, they make them out of gold and, and silver and you lift it up on your shoulder and you carry it and you set it down in place and it can't move. It can't answer when you speak to it. What kind of a God is that? And yet it says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, 
saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. And what's interesting is that in Isaiah, which was written 100 years uh, or so in that ballpark before uh, Daniel actually had to stand in the, the King Nebuchadnezzar's court and speak to the king, um, this was declared. Both the coming of Babylon and the destruction of Babylon by the Persians, the salvation of God's people from, uh, from the beginning, God declared the end. And we, we can take comfort in that. And that's what that passage in Isaiah is about. So we're in chapter 2 of Daniel. And the section of, of Daniel that we're in, so we had the introduction to Daniel last week, actually the last two weeks. Kind of gave you a backdrop, went through chapter 1, setting the, setting the scene for the big theme of Daniel. And does anybody remember the, the, uh, the major themes that are expressed in Daniel from last week? Anything strike you as memorable? Hopefully something good. Anybody? I think what struck me most was that even as a child taken from his parents into a foreign country, mm-hmm. he had enough biblical background and enough character that he stood out and stood for all of the values he had been taught as a child. And I think of how society has affected my grandchildren and my own grandchildren. And when they go off to college or into high school or junior high, they get into a peer group that may be anything but biblical, right. and they go the way of the world. Mm-hmm. And yep. these young men stood out. I mean, they knew the word. They yep. knew where their beliefs were. Yep. And I guess one of the questions that is begged to be asked in that, because we see that all the time, mm-hmm. um, there is a, a battle for the hearts and minds of men mm-hmm. and women. And that um, the world has uh, a way that seems right. And yet God declares what is right. And that's the battle. Do you believe God or do you believe the world? To me, this is a classic battle of being in the world and not out of it. Yes. So their their names are even changed. Yes. But that doesn't matter to them. That's right. They're not changed. They are still the people that they were, even if they're, you know, in the house and service of the king of the enemy. Yep. They're still going to stand up and they're going to do the best job they can for it. Right. And, uh, that, and, and that's an important uh, you know, thing that we take away from this. It's like Daniel served well for 65 years. He served well in a place that was not... Um, not his own. And probably a lot of people wouldn't have noticed whether he did a good job or not. But he chose to, to do a good job where God placed him. Even though he wasn't of that of that kingdom. And I think that's that's a takeaway for us. One of those small little nuggets we come across. What we see is that with the the training that these young men did have which may have been uh, 
we don't know the, the amount of uh, training that they had other than by their age and knowing from the place of privilege that they came from, they probably had some good education. And they probably had some uh, indoctrination that was fairly good in the faith because uh, they would have been affected by the reforms of Josiah even though the, the world around them was uh, turning away from God they would have had opportunity to get a good education such that when they went off to college, they had a choice, like our kids do today, um, which, which kingdom are you going to choose? And what we see as the exemplars here are young men that chose God and his kingdom even though it didn't look like he was there, even though it didn't look like he was present. And even when they were renamed to the gods of the culture that they were put in, they remained true to the one true God. And so the next uh, sections of Daniel that we're going to look at, chapter 2 through chapter 7, are specifically uh, narrative stories that are written to the world. So Daniel and his friends were placed in this community. Um, the, the message now is not so much for... <clears throat> The, the remnant of Israel to give them hope but to tell us something about who God is and how we should behave as God's people in this world we're not from here we're not of the world but we're in the world and so that's what we're going to see so this is one of the, the classic stories that we tell of Daniel the, the ones that are coming up you have the story of uh, the interpretation of the dream which in many ways is similar to Joseph and his dream and how he became prime minister of Egypt. Um, you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And, uh, and you know, we, we'll have a different section in Isaiah to read about that next week. You have the story about King Nebuchadnezzar getting turned into a cow. That's uh, kind of the way that it works. He doesn't actually physically become a cow, but he becomes like an animal and raises in the field for seven years. We have the story of uh, the destruction of Babylon. We have uh, the story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Uh, we have the, the story of the future kingdoms. And so what we see is we see a bookend uh, on each end of these stories, these narrative accounts. The first starts with God is in, uh, sovereign over history. And that's demonstrated through uh, the revelation that God gives the king, Nebuchadnezzar, about the kingdoms of the world and the succession of those kingdoms. We see that in chapter 2. We see it on the other bookend in chapter 7. So in many ways, these, these stories are like capped. God is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over history and people. God is sovereign over history and people. And in between, the narratives are teased out as to how God is sovereign over people, how God is sovereign over epics, how God is sovereign over the affairs of, of men. And so we see that teased out in the stories in between. We're going to start in, in uh, chapter 2 this morning. This is the first bookend. I'll go ahead and read. It says, now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and any time you guys want me to stop, just stop me. So if something strikes you as unusual, 
first sentence I just read. You're welcome to stop me. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, and the conjurers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would grant, that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel sang, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you... O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. 
The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the later days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chafe from the summer threshing floors, or chaff, however you want to pronounce it. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, or the king among kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another, third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks it in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel, and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods, and the, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. 
Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. What jumped off the page and struck you? God is the one who sets up... Repeat? God is the one who sets up kingdoms and takes them down. God sets up kingdoms and takes them down. And Daniel declares it. That, that must have taken some, some courage to stand before the king and, and say, well, <clears throat> granted you're a great king and you have power over life and death, uh, but you're here because God put you here. Yeah, it's one of those puzzling questions. Why would God set up an apparently bad king? To demonstrate his glory by having the lowly man um, rise up out of that. Yep, for the glory of God. We, we understand that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. So we're seeing the, the clash of the kingdoms, the war of the worlds going on here. And it's being played out in wisdom. It's not being played out in power plays and intrigue, the way that men uh, accomplish their feats uh, of, uh, of furthering their kingdoms is through power. The way that God does it is through wisdom. In fact, it was wisdom that sent God into the world to die as a lonely peasant, right? A carpenter from a place that they didn't even think a prophet would ever come from, even though they didn't read their own scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar went through what a lot of people, most people, all the world's offerings were there, all the wise men, astrologers, and such, and the sleep prior to state, he looked at it and he realized they were all worthless. He was in a position where he could do something unusually strong about it. Yes. He read them all. But we all have to go through that. We have to uh, recognize God sometimes just by eliminating all the other possibilities before you get there. Yep. Yeah. I think that that's interesting because it's, to me it seems that God was moving on his heart to know about to know that there's something more than just inward because the way that he said you got you have to tell me my dream and then tell me the interpretation it was it seems as though he knew that he could feel the presence of God and knew that this was possible somehow even though it would seem impossible and so he was going to so, tell all these things so here's the king. The one who has just conquered the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has a dream that troubles him. He has a dream that um, it puzzles him, and it troubles him, and it causes him to lose sleep. That's what it says here. It says, sleep has left him. Um, it was gone. It kept him awake. You ever had a dream like that? A dream that kept you awake? So, so this was a, a real significant event in this very powerful man's life. 
And he knew that it meant something, but he didn't know what it meant. Linda? He did. He remembered his dream. I maybe he did. Forgot it. Well, some some would say that he forgot it, but there's no indication that he forgot it. In fact, it was very present in his mind. Isn't it because he's pretty smart, knowing that I can tell someone he can come up with anything? That's right. You tell me the dream. That's right. You might know something. That's right. So if you want to know that something is legit that you can't know in advance, in other words, he doesn't know the interpretation to the dream. He doesn't know what it means. Well, if you can verify that the person telling you that can tell you something that you do know, then that adds the legitimacy to what you don't know. So the king is a smart guy. He's powerful. This is an important dream. It means something significant. He has that sense. And he, he wants to make sure that the information that he gets is reliable. That's a wise thing. So he's being a wise, a wise king. Yeah? More of an observation, I guess, than a question, but it, it strikes me that um, he sends out this decree to kill all the wise men. Yes. And I, and I have to sit there and go, well, you're saying he's a wise man. Yeah, he was, he was crafty and, you know, demanding the, the dream itself before the interpretation. But, but what's he going to do after all the wise men of his kingdom are dead? That's, that's part of his strength, yeah. right? As a king, yes. is, and I was just kind of curious what was going through his mind. You know, what's he going to lean on once uh, all the wise men are gone? So, so there, are, there are kinds of wisdom. Yeah. Well, I don't right? understand. I'm saying no, no, no. Observation. That, that's a good observation because a kind of wisdom of the world would say that you rule through power. And that's a display of power. I have power over life and death. If you can't give me the answer, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Well, wisdom also says for a king or a president or whoever that a lot of his power actually comes from or flows from his counselors around him uh, that can give him uh, direction and advice as well. Yes, but cleverness, cleverness would say, if you have bad counselors, get rid of them. (laughs) (laughs) So so the wisdom of the world is clever. It displays intelligence, it displays uh, ingenuity, it displays all these kinds of things that you're seeing in King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, this is a story, so we need to take the story part and we need to look at the different story elements, right? So he's cleansing, he's cleansing his wife. Well, yeah. So, so what you're going to see in this clash of the kingdoms is two different kinds of wisdom. Yeah. Right? Tim? Uh, I think we have to keep in mind that this is a miracle, too. I mean, you know, I would love to know what the future is for myself and what my dreams are. So, this was happening today. I mean, it would be a miracle to to know what the dream was and then to do it. So, it does display supernatural. Now, who was he calling the counselors? Those were the guys who were supposed to know the supernatural. Right? So, he's he's asking the right people in his culture the right question, and he wants uh, a certainty that they're not just going to their books, because these guys had libraries full of dream interpretation stuff, full of incantation magic stuff, right? And what they would do is they would go, and these are, you know, they sound wise, it sounds right. So somebody comes in with a dream, and they say, yeah, I had a dream that I was on a desert island, and 
uh, stranded and, and it goes to the book of desert island dreams. Okay, you're feeling very isolated and lonely. You know, it's the kind of thing when you call the psychic hotline. No, seriously. They're using cues from what you tell them to tell you something that is pretty obvious if you think about it once you read the script, right? It's like, well, of course, you know. Uh, that would make sense. That would fit. But what's happening here is that the king says, no, I don't want you to go to your script. I don't want you to go to your library. I don't want you to tell me the canned knowledge of man. I want to know specifically. This seems really important. Daniel? I think, um, Bob, that's the reason why he got to the point that he did was because uh, he was just over it. He's like, what, what's the point of all these wise people around me if they're just worthless? What well, I need yeah. for this? So I'm just going to kill them all. I'm going yeah. So, you know, a new president comes in and he gets fires the old cabinet and gets a new cabinet. And, and so that, that could be one way of doing it. Now, it seems kind of harsh, but, you know, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he calls in the, the advisors, the counselors. Uh, there are a specific kind, magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. So this is the educated elite that he brings in. Because my Bible says astrologers instead of Chaldeans. Is that just a group of people that were known yeah. as astrologers? Yeah, so okay. the, the Chaldeans were uh, the elite class. And uh, they were the holders of certain secrets, and astrology was one of them. So uh, some people think that the, uh, the wise men that came from the East at Jesus' birth were of this descent, of Chaldean descent, and that what they were... Uh, the reason they saw a sign in the sky was because they were astrologers, right? That was part of their practice. Um, so, you know, we could talk, we could go down a whole rabbit trail there. I don't want to do it, but these were, just think of them as the educated elite, the ruling class that held special knowledge. What was the source of that Well, the source of that knowledge was the same as any knowledge that you can gain from the world. It is purely natural knowledge gained through observation. There, there could be an there could be the influence of the demonic in revealing things, and we do see instances of that. But in this case, um, with the exception of possibly those that are described as sorcerers. Uh, I would say uh, you can't necessarily read into it that it's demonic influence. Rather, I would say that it's a purely natural influence of the world, which we know came from Satan, yes. right? So in that sense, yeah, there's a lineage there. Uh, but these guys weren't guys that were um, getting, you know, they weren't like uh, in our day, there's, um, what do they call them, spirit guides that speak to people. And one of them was a guy named Seth, evidently, that lived, thousands of years ago and was reincarnated many times and you get this whole story right the world sucks this stuff up I did as a kid and uh, and so you have people that actually do practice a demonic uh, relationship and they sometimes might have a supernatural insight um, but that's not necessarily what's happening here I think this is probably more on the order of the natural uh, forms of knowledge, and these guys were masters of it. So they're like the heads of the university, right? If you want to know um, 
if you want to know the answer to a physics question, you go to Einstein and his descendants, right? The guys that taught at Princeton. That's who you go to. That's who these guys are. It's clearly a case where whatever the Right, because they said, you know, no natural system of observation can tell you what you're dreaming. No, no natural system of observation can tell you what's spinning between your, between your ears. And they're saying, that's ridiculous. You, of course you've got to tell us a dream, you know. Maybe it's not in our book, maybe it is. How will we know? You've got to tell us. That's basically their response, well, right? Well, they can kind of point to the general right direction. Only the gods can know. Well, that's that's true. They're saying that only supernatural knowledge can reveal this. That's that's the statement, and that they're saying their knowledge is purely natural. Although it's good, it seems to be wise by the way of the world. It's good counsel. <clears throat> now, yeah. well, it's uh, interesting that when Daniel finds out, you know, they're going to kill him plus everybody else. Then he goes to his friends yep. and pray about it. That's right. He says, let's pray. Because we know that our God um, really does know what's going on in the affairs of men. He really is sovereign over history. And he can certainly reveal this if that's his choice. And uh, we need to be talking to our God and not going to the library to go through the books and see what you know what you do in this case. Now there are certain cues that are given about the characters in this story, right? So the setting in this story is the king's court. Um, the characters in this story are Nebuchadnezzar, right? The astrologers, magicians, Chaldeans, the wise guys, right? Uh, Daniel and his friends. Who are some of the other characters in this story? Pardon? Captain of the Guard. Captain of the Guard. Captain of the Guard. Named by name. So and and his title is given. So that's obvious he's a significant character. Right? Uh, God is a, a character in this story. And the gods of Babylon are characters in this story. Bel, Nebo. Um, so when you look at the characters. They have certain roles in a story. Does anybody know the, the roles of different characters in a story? Yeah, the protagonist, antagonist, foil. So, protagonist is the character who experiences change. Might be good change, might be bad change. It's the one who is transformed in the course of the story. Who would be the protagonist in this story? Nebuchadnezzar. We like, to, we like to put Daniel in the protagonist because we like the hero. <clears throat> well, did Daniel change? Daniel didn't change. So you have a protagonist being Nebuchadnezzar. Who is the antagonist? The antagonist is usually the agent of change. Is Daniel the antagonist? Is he the agent of change? God is the agent of change. That's right. So Daniel's not the protagonist, he's not the antagonist, so he's not one of the principal players. And we're saying, hold it, this is about Daniel, isn't it? No, it's not about Daniel. This is about a worldly king and God who changes him. 
And there's another kind of character called a foil. The foil is a character that is in the story to help reveal um, some characteristic of one of the other players, in this case, the protagonist. So the foil is there to help reveal the character of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's Daniel. Daniel is the foil in the story. And it's important to see him that way. But we get certain information about this character. And we also have that which moves the characters through the story, which is the plot. Right? It's the action of the transformation that occurs. Well, the plot here is the dream. So we have the setting, King's Court, the plot, the dream that's going to move us through in its interpretation. And there, this, the, uh, the heightening of that plot is that if you can't tell me the dream, I'm going to tie a rope onto your four limbs and hook those ropes onto bent-over saplings and you'll be tied there and then we're going to let those saplings go and they're going to spring up like this and you're roped onto that. It's going to tear you limb from limb. That's what, that's what the, the heightening of this plot is. If you can't tell me this, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb and I'm going to have your, your household totally destroyed. All right? that, that's pretty good, pretty good gas on the fire there. Um, and we start out with, in the setting, we want to understand something about these characters. It says, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, I'll stop right there. What is the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar? What is it? You mean after he falls? Yeah, so Nebuchadnezzar was a warrior king. He was um, like the... Uh, the uh, five-star general, right? And that uh, he was uh, the general over the full theater of, uh, of war action that was going on by Babylon as they went out and conquered the world. He was the conquering king. And he was the descendant of the reigning king. And when that descendant, his father, died, he became the reigning king he was the conquering king. So when it says the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, we know that that would be the uh, following his ascension to the reigning king that would have been when he started his reign as the ultimate ruler. So the transition period is over and, and now he's settled in so the right. are starting to come up on it. Right. And you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar was the one that as the conquering king went in and took Babylon or uh, Jerusalem royalty and trappings from the temple to prove that the gods of Babylon were greater than the gods of the Jews and that uh, the culture of Babylon was stronger than the culture of the Jews. He brought them out and was training them up, right? He put them in university. How long was that university? Three years. Three years. How old was Daniel when he went in? Yeah, he was a teenager, 14, 15 years old, right? So um, he was in college for three years, would have graduated when he was 18. Now, if this is the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the only way that Daniel could have actually been serving in the court 
because we read at the end of chapter 1 that Daniel uh, and his friends were placed uh, uh, as servants in the king's court and entered the king's personal service, verse 19. So that would have made him officially a wise guy, right? Well, what this means is that the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, if you count the ascension year as one year, and then the first year of his reign following the ascension year is the second year, and then uh, the, the third year would have been the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. That would have been right after Daniel graduated. So he graduated from... Yes? Okay, so I'm not getting the time. Okay, let me draw it out. No, okay, here's why. Okay. In chapter 1, verse 1, uh-huh. King Nebuchadnezzar comes with Babylon and takes it over. Conquering king. Not the reigning king. Yeah, not the reigning king. Okay, so that could have been a whole... So his father was on the throne or something? Yes. He was yep. Okay. Yep. And so from the year of ascension being the first year of Daniel's university to the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which would have been the second year of Daniel's university, to the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign would have been the third year of Daniel's university. He would have graduated at the end of three years, which it tells us in the first chapter. He was a recent graduate, probably 18 years old. Look at the chutzpah of this guy that will... One, when he's threatened to be torn limb from limb, he says, God can answer this problem. I'm, he, he's speaking to the captain of the guard. And he says, tell the king to wait. I'll give him the dream and its interpretation. So he was already a wise man at this point. Yeah, he was a wise guy. So he, he was, was, he was considered among the... So he was going to get killed anyway. He was going to get killed. Daniel was, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and what's Daniel's concern? What is his concern? It's for the other guys. Daniel's there in service. I got a question. Yeah. My question is: is, is um, when the uh, when the decree went forth? Okay. If Daniel was already there, why was he asking? Why is he being killed? Um, imagine that okay so so uh, you have this distressing dream and you need you need the interpretation because you're now the reigning king the ruling king and the conquering king you're the king of the world and something is really important it's keeping you up at night you're going to bring in your best advisors are you going to bring in the recent grad no you're going to bring in the seasoned guys the seasoned guys come in, the inner court, and in that dialogue that we get party to, that they said, no way. You know, only, only supernaturally could you get this information. And it ticks off the king so bad, he says, okay, you're all toast. That's it. I'm signing a decree right now. And the executor of that decree is the captain of the guard, who was there, Arioch. And he goes out then to round them all up. So he comes into Daniel, and Daniel's, you know, doing his newbie duties uh, in the king's court. And Ariok comes up and says, okay, today you're going to die. Get ready. And Daniel says, what? What did I do? What's going on? So that's, that's kind of the backdrop to this.
So it's not that, yes? The implication is that though they were considered wise men, they weren't in the upper hierarchy. Correct. So the head wise yeah. So you would think that the king would have taken them out and then gone to the next tier. But no, he says, no, I'm done with all wise guys. I'm going to go from the top to the bottom. I'm going from the new grad to the guy that's been there for 60 years. Well, if you go back to chapter 1, um, you know, he enters the king's personal service. doesn't necessarily mean that he was a wise man. Well, so, so uh, in some sense, we're, we're, we're bringing interpretation into play here that uh, chapter one has a different audience, a different context. Chapter two has a different audience and context. However, they inform each other because that's why I pointed out the, the cue, second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Um, and where would Daniel have been in that process that he would have been considered a wise guy? Because if he wasn't considered a wise guy, he wouldn't have been at risk. Arioch would have never come to him. <coughs> but Arioch does. Bob? Yeah, back in chapter 1, verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted him, he found them, we talking Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and he found them ten times better than all magicians and conjurers that were right. around. So, I think Arioch, even though he had orders to come and kill, including Daniel, yeah. I think there was already some degree of respect probably on Arioch's part. He knew Daniel. Right. And he there was something about Daniel's character that already stood out to where Daniel could say, Yeah. Give me, give me a little time. Now you're starting to dig. And, and Arioch goes, I trust you. Yeah, That's I think right. there was there was already some, some reputation there that uh, gave him yeah. an opportunity, but as for uh, Jim's question, you know, that's, it's a very common thing throughout the Bible. You know, God uses the, the rookies, the, yeah. the fishermen, the tax collectors, the, right. you know, the Moses, you know, all these guys to do, uh, to do his tasks, not the superstars, you know. And, and that's, and that's the, the point of this is that Daniel was not the superstar. There's nothing exceptional in me that brings you this message. Right. The reason Arioch is called out is because Arioch puts his life at risk by listening to Daniel out of a, a position of respect and going before the king and saying, hey, one, let these guys sleep on it. Two, okay, I found someone that can do this for you. His life is at risk by going before the king. Verse 36 Yes. Yes. Good. Good catch. I assume that's Daniel and his buddy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's not clear. Or is it a fair assumption? I guess because that has a knock-on effect later with Daniel and some other events. And it says we so. We as a Daniel God know. Right. The word before, so it seems like it almost has to be. It it could it could be. There's there, again. There's there's no other than that you. And I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah. I mean, you guys are good observers, right? So all of a sudden we get a plural here. Where did that plural come from? Now we know at the end of the story that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted as well. So possibly they were there. 
Maybe Daniel was the spokesman for the group of uh, Jewish wise guys. Or maybe it's Arioch who put his neck on the line, um, and he's actually the backing for Daniel. So he escorts him in, and he says, King, this is a guy. Um, I'm here to cover his back until you either chop off his head uh, or command me to chop off his head, or we go together. One of the consistencies of God, God reveals... We don't know. We don't know. It's a possibility. It's a possibility. And that, um, and and why was Daniel the one that, that he draws a short straw? <laughs> we don't know. So so there are things that are left out in the story, and they're as important as the things that are included in the story. you got to remember, God is an expert. In it, right? So he includes what is important to include, and he excludes what is unimportant. It's not important for us to know um, who all had the message, but we know that that it was yeah that this was speaking for a large group of people that had their neck on the line, and that God indeed is sovereign, and that these people were putting their um, lives in God's care in revealing this, and whether it was revealed to one as a representative for the nation. Or whether it was, you know, the whole nation had it and only one went forward. We don't really know. That detail isn't important. What is important is um, that Daniel, as a foil, went before the king. That he's there to allow God to change his heart, to change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. So Nebuchadnezzar needs to have a change of heart or something bad is going to happen. And who's going to change Nebuchadnezzar's heart? Daniel? No. Daniel says, it's not me. It's God. But Daniel is the one that's there to present. And how he got there is part of the backstory. It's important. But it isn't because, um, because Daniel was anybody exceptional. And I, I keep wanting to point this out. I mean, he was a smart guy. He was a wise guy. I find it interesting that uh, Nebuchadnezzar would not give any extra time to the astrologers and so on. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is it. Uh, you've crossed the line now. But when Daniel comes and asks for time, he grants it. Yep. You know, so there's there's a certain amount of trust there. That, or, yeah. Uh, of course, God was behind the whole thing to, to right. move him to give him time. Well, God, God was there. Daniel was courageous. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, for whatever reason, he, his reason was he wants the answer. If somebody says, you know, I can give you that answer, you give me the time, in a way that was sincere. Because when the other said, hey, I want more time, he says, I can see that you're just trying to buy time here. He was respectful, though, too. Because the other guys were like, you're nuts. Nobody can do that. Yeah. Imagine he didn't like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it really ticked him off. But Daniel also says, I can, I can give you what you're asking for. Yes. I'll give you the interpretation after you tell me the dream. Yeah, correct. So Daniel didn't make any condition. He just trusted God. And those, these are all important points that we tease out here.
going back a little way to your question about, uh, you asked about why he decided to take that step to give the king an interpretation of the dream, and um, he said that they, he did it so that he would save uh, the other people, it says, mm -hmm. or in my um, position here, it says that, um, that they then went to his house and made the matter known to Hannah, Michelle, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Yep. So it seems kind of like they were concerned with their own. Uh, <coughs> and so that's why, like, we don't want to die, so we're going to have to. Well, I, I expect it's a very human reaction, and I'll yeah. find out some days, well, as everybody else, that when confronted um, with your physical death, that that will always be a quite sobering experience and you'll want to avoid that. So in, um, in that light or in context, I was thinking that when he says we to the king, he's referring to all the, he's covering all the wise people, saying we, you know, these guys are going to live now also because I'm, you know, he's a representative. Right. That's kind of and what's interesting is, is because a whole class was also to be destroyed, he also intervenes for the whole class. He, when he, you know, goes to Ariok, he says, "Don't destroy the wise guys. Stop, right?" He says, "Wait, we've got it. Take me into the king's presence, and I'll declare the interpretation of the king." Verse twenty-four. How are we doing on time? I would. But I think Ariok was very courageous to do that because his yes. head would have also been on the line. Yeah. Yes. So he must That's have right. seen something and very. Something very special about Daniel. Yes. Because he was on the line too. So if God asks you to put your neck on the line, does he leave you there alone? No. It may feel like it. But but guess what? God never leaves you alone. He's he's his presence will never be taken from you. His son bore that for you. I see Ariok as a guy that was sidestepping the issue himself because he was he was talking to Daniel and instead of going back to the king himself and taking the credit for it, he said, oh, buddy, you go over there and ask him for that extra time." Yeah, yeah. There, there's uh, well, Ariok, very human guy, right? He may may have an elevated position. I mean, can you think of a more secure position to be the executioner in King's Court? <laughs> I mean, the cupbearer comes in, he screws up. Hey, executioner, come here. So you you see all of this confidence of Daniel, and I'm sure that he was quaking in his boots type confidence. You see the uh, the working of God behind the scenes to bring this about. Right? If God is going to change Nebuchadnezzar's heart, he has to set the scene in order for that to occur. And that's exactly what God is doing. He's bringing these elements to bear such that when his servant steps up, the opportunity for change is presented to Nebuchadnezzar and he gets it. It's important. He gets it. Now, we're going to find out how much he gets it a little bit later in the story. We need to stop here or Pastor Bob's going to.
really happening. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. There's a lot more here. We'll, we'll mine it next week and we'll move into the, to the next story, which is one of my favorites. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for opportunity uh, today to come and just be uh, incredibly blessed by uh, your word to Daniel and to the world uh, through Daniel. <coughs> Lord, um, it challenges us in so many ways as we live out our lives in, in uh, flesh and blood and the moments of a day, uh, Lord, and the challenges that we face and the decisions we have to make. Uh, Lord, you display exemplary character, what it means to be a person after your heart, um, and what that takes in certain occasions in stepping forward. Lord, we thank you for the transformation that you're accomplishing both in our lives and in the lives of those around us, that you care about kings, you care about peasants, you care about the highest and the lowest, and that you work actively to bring them to you. And that, Lord, we know that um, that this is your doing, that you've declared the end from the beginning, and that it truly is good that we can be um, confident in your goodness and in your action always, Lord, uh, on behalf of those that you love. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. We ask for your protection. We ask for your provision. Uh, it's a, a wild and crazy and dangerous world that we live in, and uh, you've called us to be... Um, in this world but not of this world and Lord help us protect us and provide for us as we stand for you and Lord help us to stand faithfully we thank you for your service and all of this we uh, we ask your blessing and give you the praise Lord Jesus your name we pray Amen, Amen.